This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This week's episode of Mission Log was recorded prior to the SAG After a Strike guidelines relating to rewatch and companion podcasts. Roddenberry Entertainment stands in solidarity with creative professionals. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 504, Day of Honor. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we set our alarms to watch an episode of Star Trek and on time bring you any morals, meanings, and messages that we may find and to also see if it stands the test of time. This week, it's Day of Honor. The one you watch when you think you are having a bad day because this is the episode when Balana wakes up late for work, which is literally the best part of her day. I'll be back with trivia in a moment, but first, Norman wants to tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, Day of Honor was written by Jerry Taylor, and this is her first sole writing credit for season four. She just has a few more of those to go, and she will remain executive producer throughout the season. It was her idea to use this opportunity to push forward and solidify the growing relationship between Tom Paris and Bellana Torres. And you may remember that on the previous episode, we discussed that some of the episodes were fast-tracked when the production order changed. This episode would have been number four in the season, but it was bounced up to episode three. It was directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino, and good to see him back for his second episode as director of Voyager. He did three on DS9, and the first one for Voyager that we covered was Fair Trade. He will be back for three more over the course of this season. Now, as a director, Trevino was dealing with more than a few technical challenges, as there were a number of special effects sequences. The biggest of that was the extended scenes of Tom and Bellana in EV suits floating in space, which required Dan Curry and his team to work with Trevino and director of photography Marvin Rush to come up with clever and convincing ways to shoot. A big part of that involved using a free-floating support against the blue screen stage to add movement to the shots, and then just to make things more difficult, Marvin wanted some of those shots to come from underneath, which meant suspending the actors on rigs, as well to accomplish nearly 360 degrees of motion. 
And, and if all of that wasn't hard enough, they had to take special care of one cast member. Roxanne Dawson had confided in only a few people that she was pregnant. Robbie McNeil became her advocate to make sure that she was getting adequate breaks and not exerting herself in an already difficult setup. Let's meet our guest stars. Well, welcome back to Alexander Enberg as our other resident Vulcan, Vorik, making not only his Star Trek debut, but also his professional on-screen debut for anything. Kevin Stilwell plays the holodeck Klingon Mokdor. Kevin has a theater background as both actor and director, and he continued to rack up guest credits after this episode aired, including the time travel feature film Looper. Being trained as a stuntman, he has also worked in that arena and as a fight coordinator. And we meet two new aliens, uh, Katati, those would be Raman and Lumas, played by Michael Kravik and Alan Altschuld, respectively. Michael is someone we have met before in our guest star lineup. He was Samuels of the Maquis colonists in the DS9 episode, The Maquis Part 1, in that he was more recognizable with his human face, and he'll have a lot less makeup than he does here when he returns to Star Trek for one more guest appearance in Enterprise. Finally, Alan is also a returning Trek guest star, having racked up three previous appearances in three different species before. You may have caught Alan in a small role in the Tom Hanks movie The Money Pit, but on Star Trek, he started with us early as one of the alien mercenaries in TNG's Starship Mine. Then he was under heavy makeup again as Uranek in Gambit Part 1. Finally, we got to see his human face in Voyager's third season episode, False Prophets. He was the poor sandal maker who threw himself at the mercy of the Ferengi gods. And this episode marks his final Star Trek appearance so far. It might look like a nice day for a spacewalk, but there's never a good day for an unexpected spacewalk. Prologue. Seven of Nine wakes from her regeneration alcove in Cargo Bay 2 and is met by Chakotay, who appears as requested. Knowing he is in charge of duty assignments, Seven explains that her continued solitude is proving to be difficult and that a duty assignment may be beneficial. Meanwhile in engineering, Balana is not in good humor. After waking up late and a mishap with her sonic shower, things just snowballed from bad to worse with staff calling in sick, pushing back maintenance schedules to currently shutting down coolant leaks with Vorik. When Tom arrives to remind her about their evening plans, she's not in the mood to discuss it or her decision to partake in some obscure Klingon ritual. Tom cautiously leaves engineering as Chakotay arrives to assign Seven of Nine to assist in engineering due to her transwarp knowledge. And regardless how Balana feels in the matter, Chakotay makes it clear that this is an order. Act 1 in her ready room, Janeway meets with Seven of Nine and explains what she expects from the trust that has been afforded to her. Janeway also asks Seven of Nine to consider using her less cumbersome human name, Annika. The two eventually agree on Seven as an accurate enough name, even if imprecise. Shortly after on the bridge, Voyager is hailed by a badly damaged ship on approach. Voyager hails the alien vessel and a withered and downtrodden alien appears on the view screen. He is Raman of the Katati 
and he represents the handful of his species that survived Borg assimilation over a year ago and who have been wandering the quadrant ever since with barely enough food or resources to get by. Janeway offers what she can, including securing a small quantity of thorium isotopes, which Raman specifically requested. In engineering, while Seven is working at her assigned console, Balana interrogates her about Seven's feelings towards the Katati, to which she bluntly responds that she has none on the matter. Later in the mess hall, Balana sulks and picks at her meal. Neelix offers a sympathetic ear, along with Klingon blood pie, and understands she is grappling with celebrating the Klingon Day of Honor. He offers himself up as Balana's stress relief, but also reminds her that traditions are worth preserving. She agrees via a large spoonful of the blood pie. The Day of Honor ritual is done via a holodeck program, one that both Tom and Balana designed together. It's complete with all of the cultural trappings of a proper Klingon ceremony. Fire pits, pain sticks, raw tog heart, Kalis's special brew, and a Klingon guide to the endurance tests. But Balana appears that she couldn't care less, and after tasting a few pain sticks to strengthen her resolve, she leaves the holodeck while the program is still running and sulks in her quarters instead. When Tom arrives to find out what happened, she lashes out at him, driving him away, as he shoots back a few parting words about why she's always alone. Act 2 As several more Katati escort ships accompany Voyager, Janeway and members of her command staff meet with a Katati representative who manages to shame his hosts into providing the Katati with more supplies than Janeway originally promised. Neelix is outraged by the Katati's shamelessness and defends Janeway's past generosity, but the captain is resolute in her charity and asks Tuvok to escort their guest to the transporter room. Meanwhile, Tom Paris is escorting Seven to engineering when they cross paths with Tuvok and his Katati guest, who is curious about what species she is. Tuvok says she is a former human Borg drone, which causes the Katati to charge at her and demand to know what happened to his wife and children. Tuvok manages to restrain his Katati guest and escort him away. Tom notices that Seven is undisturbed by the altercation, but also notices that she has this effect on many of the crew. Tom graciously offers her his friendship and support to help her adjust. Later in engineering, Balana, Tom, Seven, and Vorik are ready to test Seven's transwarp modifications. However, when Voyager reaches warp 2, tachyons leak into the warp core. Unable to stop the leak and a possible core breach, Balana has no choice but to evacuate engineering and jettison the warp core, which officially makes this the worst day of her life. Act 3 after assessing the situation, Janeway is informed that the warp core is intact and did not breach, which means it can be salvaged, but not by Voyager, whose engines are crippled for the moment. Tom and Bellana are the two officers best suited to fix and retrieve the core and are ordered to take a shuttle to do just that. While en route to the warp core's coordinates, Bellana laments that all of this happened to her in just one day and promises that once the core is reinstalled, she's going to sleep right through to the next day. As they get closer to the warp core, the shuttle's sensors pick up an energy signature of a Katati ship, which suddenly fires a tractor beam at the warp core. Tom hails the Katati, and they respond, stating that they are performing a salvage operation and will open fire on the shuttle if interfered with. And after ignoring several of Tom and Balana's warnings, she tries to disrupt the Katati's tractor beam, which they use to send an antimatter pulse back to the shuttle, causing cascade system failures. With moments to spare, Tom and Balana put on their EV suits, beam as far away from the shuttle as possible, and watch the Cochrane explode from a distance. Act 4 
With only their EV suits to keep them alive, Tom tries to establish contact with Voyager using his communicator. He believes that once Voyager's impulse engines are back online, they will detect Tom's signal and retrieve them. Belana reminds him that their individual signals are too weak to reach Voyager, so Tom suggests that they combine the carrier wave strength from both suits to increase their range and their chances. Speaking of chances, even though their situation is dire, Tom manages to keep their spirits high with a few well-timed flirtations. Back on Voyager, Janeway meets with Seven to investigate what exactly went wrong in engineering. And even though Seven answers Janeway's questions to the best of her ability, she senses the same attitude from Janeway as she has with others on Voyager, that she is still a threat. Janeway admits that she still has her suspicions, but gives Seven the benefit of the doubt, which is puzzling to Seven as concepts of trust and forgiveness, and especially unexpected acts of kindness, are foreign to her. As Tom and Bellana continue to drift through space, they emotionally drift even closer to each other while sharing stories of their past days at Starfleet Academy. Suddenly, an ion turbulence wave passes through them and damages their EV suits. Tom's air supply is damaged and Bellana has to share hers to keep them both alive, even though her supply, which should have 24 hours of oxygen, now only has a half hour left. Act 5. As Janeway and Seven discover evidence that proves the accident in engineering was just that, an accident, Vorak informs Janeway that impulse power will be restored within the hour. Chakotay enters and informs the captain that he's picked up a carrier wave signal from Tom and Bellana. But before Voyager can move to save them, Tuvok summons Janeway to the bridge and informs her that more Katati ships have appeared and have now surrounded Voyager. The Katati representative who begged for Janeway's help earlier appears on the view screen before them and claims that he is now in a position of strength, as he has possession of Voyager's warp core and has the combined firepower of his fleet to bear down on Voyager if his demands are not met. He wants even more food, more weapons, and especially all of Voyager's thorium isotopes, and wants Seven of Nine to pay for her crimes against his people. Chakotay believes that they can fight their way out, but Seven has a better idea and offers to provide the Katati with the technology to create their own thorium reserves, which would make them self-sufficient. When asked why she didn't think of this earlier, she replied that Borg only take technology and are not used to giving it back. After replicating the template for a thorium matrix, Seven and Janeway offer it to the Katati representative, and they in turn honor their agreement and give the warp core back to Voyager and let them go. Elsewhere, Tom and Bellana are running out of oxygen and time. Knowing that they may be sharing their last moments together, Bellana confesses that she's pushed Tom away because she's afraid of getting hurt. But as their last bars of oxygen begin to flicker away, she confesses that she loves Tom because on this day of honor, if she is to die this day, she wants to do so with at least a shred of honor intact. And as both Tom and Bellana embrace each other as they lose consciousness, as they continue to drift through space, Janeway's voice breaks through the silence, and they are beamed back to Voyager. The end. Nicely done, Norm. Thanks for channeling Thank a little Barry White in Act 4. Really nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know. That was good. Mm-hmm. All right. But let's start at the beginning, <laughs> as we do. Um, very interesting that we pick up in the prologue again, just like right after what's been happening before, and still continuing that thread of what's going on with Seven of Nine. But I got to ask, like, that, that mm. that's how it's going to be? Like, welcome to Voyager, your family now, except stay in the cargo bay away from everyone else. <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, I, I, I get that she needs to regenerate, but 
Could she do that in quarters? Uh, do they invite her to lunch? I, I, I'm not really sure. But apparently, I mean, at least for a week, she's been hanging out alone. On the business side of this, are they making sure that they get their like appearances per prop that they've rented out? <laughs> right. <'Cause, laughs> right. Is, is that how this works? I mean, is the outcome going to be like featured a lot because they're using like movie props? Right? Yeah. I mean, I guess if you get it, you might as well use it. And it, it probably just became part of the standing set for Voyager, you know? Yeah. And I have to ask, though, in the context of the story, did they only just now think of asking Seven about what she knows <laughs> and, like, and how she might integrate with the crew? Like, it has been a week, and uh, at least, at least a week. I'm not sure exactly how the start date lines up. And that this would have been, remember, two weeks after the previous episode, if this had aired when they originally planned. So, a little, you know, time goes by, and just now they're like, hmm... Maybe we should see if we can integrate her into the crew and maybe use her knowledge, not just give lip service to the idea that we are a new collective who supports her. Yeah, it is strange when you're watching it from like week to week to see like where the development process should be kind of like organically. Like we, yeah. sometimes we believe that a week of time has passed, you know, between the episode that you see and then the episode that's, you know, coming a week ahead of time. Yeah. But you would think that they would have progressed a little bit further down the road with their relationship with her. Like, I don't know, talk to her. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just know? that one little thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, speaking of kind of uh, production related issues. So is it something in a script where something is happening, but like the, the featured characters are explaining what's happening as we're watching it happen? Like, what's going on? It's a coolant leak. But yes, Steam's like flying into Vorik's face. <laughs> It's like, what are you doing? I'm attempting to close it. Of course you are. I mean, right. do you do you ha- is that a is that a symptom of '90s TV? I, I I feel like that moment would be written very differently now. Like you would just pick yeah. up the dialogue in the middle of the dialogue, where you assume mm-hmm. as the audience and both characters know what's going on, and you don't really need all the explanation detail. Yeah, I, I totally yeah. pick that up. Got to say, really hand it to Chakotay for putting his foot down with Milana. Thought that was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. Um, uh, yes, she is having a bad day. We've all had yeah. bad days, sure. But she kind of c- does cross a line with Chakotay, the friend, and Chakotay, the superior officer. Yes. And Chakotay's like, nope, here's the line. Yeah. You're getting an order. Follow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, and <laughs> as we get into Seven's interaction with Janeway, I, I kind of I appreciate Janeway just saying, like, nope, sorry, your name's too long. We we don't have the time for all those syllables. <laughs> so, yeah, instead of four, we're just going to break it down to two syllables. That's it. Uh, yeah, well, we, we, there, there's something else uh, to say. Put a pin in that one, please. There is something else to <laughs> say about that. that. One, we'll come back to it for sure, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, funny bit, though, when we first met our aliens, the Catanians, Catanians, I swear, mm-hmm. when I heard it without the subtitles, I thought the the alien introduced himself as ramen like a bowl of <laughs> japanese noodles from kentucky Delicious. it sounded like he was ramen from kentucky and thank goodness for subtitles that's awesome yeah yeah but it's katati 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 but, but yeah. it sounded like ramen from kentucky and i was like well let's let's go try the ramen in kentucky why not might be good that sounds delicious maybe. and um mm-hmm. and spicy perhaps maybe i don't know Maybe it just doesn't fill you because, you know, they are kind of withered and emaciated. <laughs> exactly. So speaking of ramen, mm-hmm. when he first appears on screen, 
he is in a medium to wide shot sitting in his chair. Right. Then they cut away to Seven and, and Janeway. Then they cut back to Raman, and he's in a medium shot. Mm-hmm. So the camera's moving back and forth during this conversation that we don't know about? Yes, another one of those mysteries of the view screen, which I'm afraid, yeah. look, we get your emails, we do, but these mysteries will never be solved adequately. I guess not. No, yeah. no. Um, definitely going to talk about Bolana confronting Seven. So, again, that's another thing that we'll shelve, come back to in the next segment. So when uh, Bolana's in the, the mess hall, there's a really nice close-up around 10 minutes of her Maquis pen. And I'm just wondering, you know, there's this entire thing with like Chakotay, you know, being the duty officer, being the first officer, kind of like, you know, uh, uh, influencing, you know, his junior officers, you know, to be better in Starfleet, blah, blah, blah. And then you see these pens. I'm like, why haven't they just completely done away with the Maquis symbology? I agree. Right? I agree. Seems like uh, they would start dropping those by now. Interesting thing about the Day of Honor, it, it seems a little redundant and self-congratulatory for the Klingons to also have a Day of Honor, because honestly, they don't shut up about honor any other day of the year. So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of it's kind of like how you know some straight people wonder why they don't have a pride parade. It's like, well, well no, because <laughs> because it's stupid and redundant. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's how I felt about uh, uh, Bellana. Well, not not about Bellana, but just the idea, the 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 sort of the pretext of Klingons having a day of honor. Um, and, and I also have to it should be followed by a day of irony. That's right, what it is. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah. blood pie. Not going to try it. Not not a fan. I've had blood soup before. Blood sausage, yeah, I can get into, but blood pie, no thank you. What do you think topped the blood pie when she ate that spoonful of it? It looked like pumpkin pie filling to me. I think it was, and that's the only way that I could uh, imagine getting that down as a prop. No blood, no mm. blood involved. Gotta say, poor Neelix, though, because Neelix doesn't get the respect that he deserves anyway, and now he actually volunteers himself to get beat up by Balana emotionally, verbally, you know? I mean, yeah. he calls out Balana exactly, precisely, but but why should really that be part of his job? I, I, I don't think so. And maybe Balana should explore professional help. At least she turns him down. Well, I mean, it, someone's trying to be at least some kind of counselor or friend to her. Sure. So I give him props for that, for trying, and, you know, of course he's going to, you know, put this under the auspices of morale officer, which we haven't heard from in a while. And, right. Yeah. You know, maybe he needs somebody, you know, to, I don't know, to the, maybe he needs somebody to comfort since Kess is gone. Oh, maybe. Okay. And, and comfort by taking verbal abuse. That's his plan. Yeah. You know, some people juggle geese, John. So. <laughs> Me too. And we'll get into the whole Tom and Bolana thing later, of course. But I have to wonder in that early kind of uh, argument that they had, I asked myself, was Tom being too unsympathetic? But then I guess Klingons don't really respond well to sensitivity. So maybe he was just playing to what she knows and would expect and respect out of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It going back to the whole irony of the day of honor, <laughs> day of honor, right? Yeah. It just the whole program just felt really artificial to me, and maybe it's the way that we should have, or we were like designed to to accept this. Like it's just so artificial and so forced, mm-hmm. and it also feels like if you're not a male Klingon, then it doesn't matter. 
because mm-hmm. it just seems so very overarchingly male. It did. You know, yeah. as, a, as a program. Like, here, eat this heart, right. drink this whatever, you know, and we're going to have pain sticks and sword fights. And, you know, it's kind of like what it was like a really abstract version of Worf's bachelor party. Yep. Yep. From Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Except just done and executed so anemically. It, yes. Yeah. We're, we're definitely missing I, at least one John Tesh. I, now, I know that we get a better look at the uh, Katanian, Katayan. I'm going to get it wrong the entire episode. Don't don't mail me. Um, but I have to say their makeup is really impressively weird. And they look malnourished and uh, the way they should, given their history that we have here. It, it's just uh, like bravo. They, they went above and beyond with the makeup here. We don't have a lot of them to see, but what we do see is really well executed. So you had ramen at the beginning. Then yeah. you have supposedly in, in the ready room scene where this, you know, Katahdin is yeah. like shaming Janeway for more stuff. Yeah. Supposedly yeah. that's a completely different other character. Impossible to tell them apart. Exactly. Yeah. That, that was is, Lumos who came in later. And they don't really make a point of it. I think you could have yeah. had a line of dialogue where Raman says, hey, I'm sending you an emissary. I'm sending you somebody. Loomis, meet him. He's great. Talk. Yeah. Get back to me. A little, a little needy, but you know, pretty good guy. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. You know, like, a little pushy. Yeah, like, hey. like we all are. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, you don't it, ask, you don't get. It's so. our way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the, the side profile, like from the front, they were okay looking, but from the side profile, they were like really interesting. Yeah. Had kind of like that elongated headpiece. Right. And just things right. looked a little bit more alien. So mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Loomis's reaction to Seven of Nine is very interesting, and one does have to wonder how many other crew just on Voyager feel the same way. I, I don't know that. Have we been introduced to anybody on Voyager who say had relatives who were lost at Wolf Three Five Nine? I mean that that is a major mm. thing in uh, Starfleet, and I gotta say, very cool effect to see Voyager eject the warp core, and it didn't explode, which is very convenient for the rest of the episode. I'm a little bummed that Belana didn't get her her LaForge maneuver moment, where mm. you know, like the blaster would come down and she would like roll, roll underneath under. it, and, yeah, like, yeah, and then you know, come back up and slap her combat and say, "Coolant leak, we got a coolant leak," you know, that yeah. kind of cool thing. That would have been yeah. awesome. I agree. Would have yeah. made her day. Yeah. Honor. But let, <laughs> but let me ask you this: when they get out of there, so they eject the warp core, the whole crew gets out of there. What the next thing she does is, you know, she calls the bridge. To let them know what happened, didn't the bridge already know? Like, like, like wouldn't there be an indicator on the bridge that you know it's like turn left, turn right, warp core got ejected? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like those hotel rooms that they have that master key. As soon as you pull the key out of the slot, like all the everything goes turn off. off. Yeah, so there's no like you know, check engine light, like you know check exactly. warp core light. Yeah, okay. If, if the warp core drops, everything on the ship just goes dark. They're like. What happened? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, we can't talk to anyone because we're out of power. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, um, I do like the uh, the callback to Nicoletti. So Torres mm-hmm. te- tells Vorik uh, for him and Nicoletti to get started on the impulse engines. Now, this Nicoletti is the one that, A, Harry got to play oboe with. Right. And B, who turned Tom down for a date, and he called her cold or frigid or something like that. Yeah. And this was in the, th- the thaw, that really weird scene that was snipped out from one episode and put into the front of the thaw yeah yeah very good point i did have to wonder since warp core is quote millions of kilometers away and they don't have warp capability 
seems like this is going to be a very long trip no matter what. And I also wondered uh, when Balana exclaims, idiots, uh, have we heard that term on Star Trek before? I don't know if we have. Not for a long time. Yeah, and I not think so. certainly like this. No. So no. Yeah. Um, I don't have any idea like mm-hmm. what it did. But when Bolana was doing her thing in the shuttle, yeah. there's this really interesting and really kind of active blinking panel on the back of her chair headrest in oh. the shuttle. Huh. I have no idea what it does. I I don't know if it's like taking a reading of her or it just keeps blinking and question. flashing yeah. and flashing and beeping and blinking. And blinking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed that they put on their EV suits so very fast. I think on the Apollo missions, it took like 45 minutes to get into them. And I think even now, best case scenario, you've got about five minutes to get into those suits that you, you could if you had to. But that is best case scenario, which, by the way, is definitely not what happens here. This is a worst case scenario. I mean, beaming out of your ship just to see it blow up behind you. That is a worst case scenario. Bad say. day. Yeah. Bad day for Bolana. Very bad yeah. day. And I, I don't know that we've ever really seen the existential terror that is free-floating in space with nothing or nobody around you on Star Trek before. Uh, that would just be unimaginable in real life. Like, I know we've had astronauts do spacewalks since the 60s, but, you know, they're usually, with rare exception, they're tethered to their craft. And then you're, you know, within visible distance, like, oh, look, there's Earth there's my craft or there's the ISS not like this that that was just scary to me to to think about in the vastness of space and those EV suits look great and the scenes look really good it's a rare thing to get that in Star Trek that much of it and I thought all of those shots looked really nice I thought the lighting was too strong on those shots oh on yeah. the on the face plates yeah and kind of like yeah it's just like I know that this is really strange nitpick, but if you're out in the blackness of space, I think if it was just a little bit darker and their faces were lit up from their internal lighting, yeah, it would have been a little bit more. It would have sold the desperation, but the suits were so bright. You did. Like, mean, where yeah. is that spotlight coming from? Yeah, you needed more internal light because it, it did kind of bounce off of them a bit much. I, I yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'll give you that. But I think the the choreography of them in space, I thought all of that looked really nice. Um, yeah. Oh boy, and then Tom going for. First contact. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I I get that they're trying to remind us all that Tom was this guy once, and maybe he yeah. still is. And then Balana's like, well, you're still a pig, but I love you anyway. Uh-huh. Can I just say it without beating around the proverbial bush? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. They're really trying to go for a Han and Leia moment, a la Empire Strikes Back here. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It was the whole, I love you, and then, you know, Tom Paris is supposed to be, I know. And we didn't get to that, but we kind of got to it, and it was just, it almost kind of took the wind out of the sails of the desperation of that scene. Yeah. You know? Um, It was just strange for me. Strange for me. Yeah. Yeah. Have to agree with you there. The buttons on the EV suits, uh, why don't they have labels? Because then I just kept thinking, like, for years at the Academy, and that's why it takes so long, you just have to learn and memorize all these cheat codes. It's like, Mm -hmm. we're going to give you this incredibly advanced EV suit. It will have an arm panel with about eight buttons on it. None of them will be labeled. So if you want to change the oxygen mix, whatever, you just have to remember it's left, right, up, down, down, up, right, left, 
oh, no, that's the one that fires Wait. the rockets. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's see. If I did this on my pad, I get infinite ammo, infinite life, infinite armor. <laughs> right. But if I don't get it right, I don't get anything. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it just it just shuts off the, uh, you know, the fluid recycling in your outfit. That's it. You know. <clears throat> <laughs> right. Glad to see that uh, Seven of Nine almost ready to start eating food. I mean, how much can you get out of a Borg alcove anyway? She is mostly human now. Remember, the doctor got rid of like 85% of her Borg technology. And I wonder mm. if we'll get some food shots now, other than just whatever garbage Neelix is passing off. Like, Seven of Nine might be thinking by now, like, I really need to try Carnegie Deli cheesecake. That will make me fully human. And True. to me, I'm just like, get into it, go. Let, let's see that. That would make anyone fully human. It would. I mean, you know, yeah. inside or outside the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Katati from Kentucky. Is it me? <laughs> but that's right. Yeah. Um, keep on shining. Uh. The uh, Katati, every single, every single time we see a race, uh, an alien mm-hmm. race in Voyager, I'm not sure if this is setting a bad precedent, but I'm almost pre like my I have a predisposition for distrusting alien yeah. races now yeah right because all of a sudden it's like hey look you know there's the 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 cute kind of like helpless old guy you know from uh worst case scenario and they end up taking over the ship not worst case scenario the was the one before from displaced oh, they yeah. end up taking the yeah, ship yeah. and then now these people they're like yeah we need some help we need a handout but now they got more ships and they're going to force us to give more handouts but you know we kind of trust you before i'm like i can understand you know maybe once in a blue moon that an alien would like turn on you. But we've had multiple episodes where the aliens have been really kind of bad actors. Well, let's put a pin in that because I think in the next segment that might come up again. And by the way, you'd think that as soon as Chakotay picked up on a carrier wave, they just send another shuttle over there at warp speed. Like, yeah, Voyager's got things to work on there, but, oh, we picked up a Starfleet thing. Okay, that is what that is exactly what we need. Send a shuttle now. Follow that beam. And I got to say, again, to uh, Roxanne and Robbie, kudos to them because th- they have a lot of emotional dialogue, which is hard to do anyway. There's just a lot of it. But then they have to do them through EV suits. Incredibly more difficult. So uh, mm-hmm. good for them getting through it. There's one thing, though, where it's such a contrivance in, in these kind of dramas, but you're running out of air. Mm-hmm. You have about five breaths worth of air left, and then you're going to go into this incredibly emotionally yep. charged dialogue. Like, wait, yep. I have two minutes of air left, but I have a five-minute soliloquy, so bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to. You have to for yeah, you have to. purposes. You have to. I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, and look, Katari... Let me speak to you directly. You really need the Voyager crew to spell things out for you. Uh, apparently so. So here, guys, use this one to make more. The, the the ion producer, the thorium ion generator is like, here, we gave you one. Oh, what are we supposed to do with this? Make more. I mean, these guys, I think, are packlet adjacent, too. They need their hands held a lot. And then finally, from Kentucky. (laughs) Exactly. And then finally, I have another note. I have another note for our crew. Janeway, why are you calling Tom and asking for a response? What, What does she even mean? Prepare to beam aboard. They have been prepared to beam aboard ever since they beamed out of their shuttle that exploded. They're ready to be beamed back aboard Voyager. Just beam them aboard. 
one time we get to see a warp core get ejected, and someone takes off with it like it's a catalytic converter. Hey, we will get right back to Day of Honor after a word from this week's sponsor, you. This conversation about Star Trek uh, and about sci-fi in general and a number of topics of interest to our audience, they continue on Discord. And our Discord is exclusive for our Patreon subscribers. Norm, what's happening over there? Well, the, the uh, Discord is growing and growing. And it's, a, it's actually um, it's a great compliment to us, John. When we first started Discord, it was just one channel. It was After Dark and we were talking mm-hmm. about this podcast live as it's released. It wasn't just After Dark. There were other, also sub-channels that with, uh, had other conversations. But the community has really grown and has created more chat channels to talk about all their different fandoms from convention happenings to uh, Twilight Zone you know, mm-hmm. to Star Trek Strange New Worlds, uh, to Babylon 5, uh, and... An international fans chat, which is actually just uh, has been created so our international fans have a chance to talk about what's going on with Star Trek episodes and with our podcast. So it's taken a life of its own. And I think that both you and I can be really proud that our audience there and community and members uh, care so deeply about it to be able to do this for not just for us, but again, for the community as well. And that community cares enough to look out for each other in a way that I love because it is a moderated forum. It's a moderated set of threads. And, I, you know, you keep hearing from people who say like, oh, social media platforms, they're, they're noisy. There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of anger. I think we've done a really nice job in curating. When I say we, I mean everybody in the community has done a really nice job of curating that conversation so that people feel safe and empowered to have very often complex conversations about Star Trek and the topics that we raise and feel safe in doing so. So I would invite everybody to come join us on the Mission Log Discord. That is an exclusive perk of our Patreon membership, patreon.com slash mission log. And we do want to thank our latest members who have joined us, Karen Lynn, Dave, Tim, Charles, Gary, Eleanor. Thank you all. If you would like to hang out with them and us and many other people in the Mission Log Discord, again, your key is patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you there. All right, Norman, did it feel maybe a little too on the nose? But (laughs) there's a lot happening in the episode. And it's kind of, it's a little bit odd to me, but I guess necessary, maybe, depending on where the rest of the story goes, depending on where the character goes over the next several seasons of the show, with Balana and her defensiveness and figuring out who she is. You have a lot of people in the earlier part of the episode who were just saying, like, hey, by the way, Balana, here's what you do. <laughs> you're, you, you're too angry because you act out because you're defensive and you're hiding your emotions. I mean, that is essentially the crux of the conversation with Tom and with Chakotay and Neelix and even her to herself. And then by the time we get to the end of it with her almost, you know, tearful confession, I'm a coward. I'm too afraid to face who I really am. I was impressed that we got to that 
serious moment when we finally got there. It felt earned. At the same time, I felt like those moments leading up to it were maybe a little telegraphed. <laughs> how how mm-hmm. did you feel about it? I guess my big question at the start was, you know, she's grappling with how she's going to celebrate this day of honor. And then it goes, you know, then I question, well, they've been on the ship for like, what, three years already? Yeah. So there weren't any other days of honor in the previous years she was on Voyager. So right, all of a right. sudden, this particular day of honor needs to be observed and celebrated because Tom is encouraging her to do that. Is that why we're doing this? I think. Yeah, maybe, I yeah. guess. Uh, so, but even then, how, how invested in that really is Tom, you know, because I, I think Tom is making a lot of assumptions about what will make Milana happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's using the term loosely, but just assuming, like, oh, you should do this Klingon ritual because you're so Klingon. But Milana is half human. And Bellana is very much at odds with her Klingon upbringing as well. So right. it seems like he's a bit more interested in that than she actually is. Right. And uh, I just mentioned this earlier. In Displaced, uh, they were walking out of a Batleth training, mm-hmm. some type of hologram program. And she wasn't really into it. And he was. Yeah. And now they both programmed this Day of Honor holodeck program together. And he's really into it. And she's not. So... I'm wondering, is this is this working for them in their relationship? Is he pushing too hard? Uh, does she not want to? And if not, why not? So I'm not really getting a lot of that, you know, in in kind of like the the reasons why she's being kind of like so standoffish with Tom at times. Well, well see, that that is part of it. Maybe this is jumping too fast to the end of our episode here, but maybe that's part of my. Uh, kind of unease confusion about the whole thing because you really fast forward the emotional moment at the end because mm-hmm. of course they're running out of air of course they think they're going to die they need to have that moment of confession but everything else leading up to it i just wonder like who's really invested in this at this point and is it for the right reasons because yeah tom may be interested in balana but has he actually figured anything out about her? Is this actually going to work? Because right now it just seems like, well, you're a Klingon uh, and you're angry a lot of the time, so go do Klingon things. And then when she doesn't or it doesn't quite work, it's not quite what she's interested in, he gets defensive about her defensiveness. Well, fine, I won't be your friend anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that was a little petulant too. So you have Balana yeah. being petulant early. Like, I don't get my way, so I'm going to stomp and walk out of the conversation. Tom doesn't get his way, so he's going to stomp and walk out of the conversation. I mean, we are dealing with mature adults, Starfleet officers on the ship. We are, right? I'm just, yeah, you know, rhetorical yeah. and ironically asking. Um, but the day of honor, I mean, yeah. if you take that out of this story, it really doesn't change anything. Nope. Right? Nope. So nope. I'm just wondering it why is it such... It's, I mean, it is a huge center uh, a huge centerpiece, I should say, of kind of mm-hmm. like the middle of the episode with this cave and the flames and the other Klingon and all the stuff. But it doesn't really tell you anything about Balana at all. No. I feel like they're looking next door and they're like, hey, DS9's got a Klingon set up. Let's go use it. <laughs> Let's go that's work right. a half day over there. That, that's kind of how it felt, but I but I digress. I'm fast yeah. forwarding to my mm-hmm. own end statement here. But let's talk about what's in a name. Mm-hmm. Janeway saying to Seven of Nine, wouldn't you prefer to be called by your given name, Annika? 
And Seven of Nine says, I've been Seven of Nine for as long as I can remember. Good for Seven here. Now, I made a joke of it in the last segment because to me, the funny part was my name is Seven of Nine. Well, can we call you Seven just to, to shorten it a bit? And I, okay, I, I guess if I walked around saying that my name is John Champion, really, I prefer that you just call me John because it's shorter, it's easier. We're spending entirely too much time by doing the full name, right? But there is a presumption there on Janeway's part. And as I'm of two minds about this scene, because I, I am so glad that Seven of Nine clearly, distinctively says, this is my name. This is what I'm comfortable with. Okay, and we come to a compromise there. And it is weird and presumptuous that Janeway would just blurt out what she does. At the same time, Am I off base giving Janeway at least a little bit of credit for asking? She's not insisting. She's asking. And maybe this is, in all good faith, it is Janeway just trying to be an ally here to Seven in some respect, saying, help me to understand how we should talk to you and who you should be. Now, she doesn't say it that way. She's leading it by saying, wouldn't you be more comfortable with the name Annika? That is presumptuous. Mm -hmm. But it still phrases a question. I I don't know. Help me here. Well, I took wouldn't you prefer as Janeway would prefer. So, okay, it, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, Seven of Nine prefers to be called Seven of Nine. She says it mm -hmm. in her response. You no, know, I've been Seven of Nine for as long as I can remember. I prefer mm -hmm. Seven of Nine. And then Janeway says, you know, when she says seven of line, it's a little cumbersome. To who? Not to seven mm. of nine. Right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. The, way, the way I see it, so shortening Janeway presuming that seven would, you know, she would entertain shortening her name, unencumber her name. Mm -hmm. If you had an officer that had a very long name. Look, Chakotay is three syllables, okay? Seven of nine is four. It so, shouldn't be that hard. Right. Yeah. And yeah. again, if she wasn't so interested in kind of imposing this kind of uh, this will for seven to be more human and to adopt more human traits and to adopt mm. the culture that she believes that seven should be adopting on Janeway's timeline, per se, mm -hmm. you know, then it just seems that. Seven's being maneuvered into these choices as opposed to coming to these choices organically. It would have been interesting at the end of this episode where some of the people, they were trying to say her full name and things got cut off or it just became a little bit too clumsy for here and there. And she's like, I think that to expedite matters, we should just call me Seven. Like she should have done that. Mm, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. She should have done that at the end of the episode because too many times throughout the course of the episode, her name got in the way. I, I'm, you know, right. I'm picturing it, this is like the setup for a bad infomercial. Like I'm, I'm picturing in my head all the outtakes of crew members walking around, like scratching their heads, just blurting out. They can't say seven of nine. It's just too difficult for them. Mm. It's so hard that she has to shorten it for them. <laughs> it would have been interesting if Bellana was doing it as a tease in engineering. Mm. And then mm -hmm. she... Mm -hmm. For some odd reason or another, she kind of like adopted it as like a badge of honor. Like I can take these, I can take like the slings and arrows from this crew because now I understand that it's a sign of affection. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well let's talk about 
seven of nine enduring slings and arrows. Does seven feel remorse? That is what uh, Belana posits to seven. And seven just says, no. Should she? And uh, for that matter, should Belana expect it? Belana got the answer that she knew she was going to get. So it's a little bit unfair, I think, asking that question to begin with. But here's the thing. Seven is an individual assimilated at the age of, what, six, eight, something like that? Okay. And brought into the Borg Collective. We all know what the Borg Collective is. We all know what they did. She didn't plan or program what the Borg did. She didn't make that decision for them. And even though she is a cog in that machine, that machine had been running long before she got there as a child. Again, as a child. That was pretty low. Yeah. Well, I think that the way I saw Belana in that scene is she's already having a bad day and she's trying to take it out on someone. And the easiest person to take it out on is the person who doesn't understand. That's Seven. So mm-hmm. she asks her these leading questions and Seven obviously has, she has the answers, but she wants to ring Seven. She wants to put her through the ringer and make her feel just as bad about her day as Belana feels about her day. So Seven's like, I can't, I can't articulate what doesn't exist is, is what yeah. she's saying. Like, right. you want me to feel bad? Right. I can't. Why not? Because I don't. That is all the information I have. She doesn't have that. And that scene there, I'll tell you what, if she, if, if Jerry Ryan wasn't like cast to play a Borg, she would play a perfect Vulcan because her her mannerisms are very, you know, Mm -hmm. they're very logical. Like, here's your answer. No further explanation. There's no need for small talk because I don't know small talk. So I'm just going to leave until my next function is necessary, which is to check on the transport you know, right. uh, modifications. So I think that misery loves company. So I think that Bellana being a miserable person that day is also looking to make someone else's day just as bad. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that, that's, there you go. That, that yeah. sums up Bellana perfectly in this episode, but then, you know, seven's journey continues in this episode. And, and I think we effectively, again, as an audience can feel some sympathy, what she's going through, trying to be a part of this crew, trying to fill a role here, but then hitting these roadblocks. She hits the roadblock with Milana. She hits a roadblock with Janeway. And I like Seven calling out Janeway saying, you're like the others. You see me as a threat. And then further spelling it out to Janeway saying, I'm unaccustomed to deception. Among the Borg, it was impossible. There were no lies, no secrets. That, that's as good a description as any about why she didn't sabotage or sabotage mm-hmm. the mission at all. I like that Janeway is able to bring things back around to the unexpected acts of kindness being common among their group. And I like that Seven has something to learn from that. But boy, the journey of getting to that learning moment is rife with pitfall because Seven's the one who has to do all the work that honestly people like Balana and Janeway should be paving the way for anyway. Yeah. And it would have been really interesting if... If like Seven was an outside observer, like maybe watching the um, the Katati, the the representative, asking mm-hmm. for more, you know, resources and kind of shaming Janeway into like giving them more, like more than they bargained for at the beginning, and watching Janeway agree and saying, "Look, you're right. 
we're living in the lap of luxury compared to you. We can afford to give a little bit more. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you could see like maybe Seven was like watching it from a monitor saying, wow, she actually broke her own agreement on the on the side of losing out in this negotiation. But Janeway saying, no, this is the right thing to do because these people have nothing. And by definition, uh, we have everything. We have the replicator. So we can afford to give away more. Even if it's just a little bit tighter on us, yeah, we'll, we'll tighten our belts a little bit, but these people are starving. But isn't that interesting, though, that Seven, because I have to assume that Seven picks up the the gist or the gist of mm. the message by offering to sacrifice herself, saying, like, I'll leave with them because that will protect you. Like, she gets the idea mm-hmm. of a selfless act, okay, but... It took her the next step in logic to say, oh, but wait, I can create something to give away. It doesn't have to just be me. So it, it was interesting to me that that kind of the spirit of the law maybe crept in there but before she was able to, to take it the next step and say, like, oh, no, no, wait, I can think creatively about the situation. I wonder why that came first, why the idea of I will give myself up, unless that's a Borg thing. Unless it's the way that the Borg would play chess on a battlefield, which is, oh, no, we can sacrifice this many drones mm-hmm. because, well, I guess we saw that in Scorpion. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing we did, we'll, we'll lose X number of Borg cubes because we need to save the one that has Voyager attached to it. Okay. I just talked myself into my own argument. So, And, <laughs> and she was on that ship. So definitely yeah. that strategy is there, you know, she's, mm-hmm. and she also did say that I did so because it would benefit the crew. So she's trying to find that particular part of her personality where she can serve the collective, i.e. the Voyager crew. So in sacrificing herself, she services her new collective. That's, that's yeah. the way I think her logic was trying to explain it away, you know, in a, obviously an uncomfortable situation for her because she's grappling with so many of these new foreign human concepts. Yeah. I want to talk very quickly about what are the limits of being a good Samaritan. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> because you're quite right that Voyager has encountered these alien species that, for the most part, have made life very difficult for Voyager. I uh, even even when Janeway and crew come along and say we're going to help you, uh, very often they've been met with the reaction that, oh, no, no, these are the outsiders. They leave this wake of destruction behind them. To Neelix's point, no, 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 they are generous. They're here to help. He's learned that from this crew. But how far can you go if you're the one who has resources and can help others and genuinely express that but then those people who are taking start to take a little too much. And the catch-22 is that then when they start taking too much, the giver, in this case the crew of Voyager, has to say, no, you can't have any more, which then makes them look like the non-giving, selfish crew that the Katari would make them out to be. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to logically, reasonably save yourself from that position? I don't know that there is. The only way I think you can really do that is to sit down at the negotiating table and kind of like create this treaty, you know, or some type mm-hmm. of, you know, some, some type of resolution to, okay, look, 
we understand who you are and what your your resources are or lack thereof. This is what we can provide, and we'll prove to you that this is all that we can provide because we need X amount of resources to get X amount of people, X amount of light years home. And if we give you this, we would never be able to recover our own, you know, means and ways of of safely getting these people home to be able to feed them, to be able to provide yeah. our ship of power, etc. But I think that. That Seven's idea, you know, instead of feeding, you know, giving them a fish, which would hurt, would be her to teaching them how to fish, which would be giving them the technology to create the thorium isotope replication matrix. Mm -hmm. So that I I think that they came to that solution a little too late, like Chakotay was saying, because of the Seven's resolution, like, oh, I can actually give away a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of always taking a good idea. So if they got to that earlier and prove to the Katati that this was actually a, a feasible, sustainable model, I don't think they would have probably come back to take more from Voyager because they already have the means to be able to sustain themselves. One would hope. It's amazing. The moment the Borg alcoves in the cargo bay are a thing. Nobody visits Club Promet anymore. Coincidence? John, we've made it to the end of our episode, and I hope that you have had a very special day of honor. Oh, man, I'm just, I'm picking the Targ heart out of my teeth. Uh, it was so tasty. Um, that's how I and celebrate Day of Honor. I know. I, I enjoyed washing it down with some artificial yet delicious Kalis grog mm-hmm. from a simulated chalice. Absolutely. That's the, yeah. the old traditional way. So as we do here at the end of every episode, we take a look at if this episode... Uh, withstood the test of time as some episodes do some episodes don't and then we see uh, if we've mined any morals or meanings or messages from said episode that may or may not have withstood the test of time so this day of honor (laughs) how did it withstand the test of time for you john it does but it doesn't it, it, it's a yes, but a no. And and maybe I'm leaning more toward no after our conversation. We get some good and necessary character moments. Do people sometimes express their true feelings in moments of peril? Absolutely. Are some people stubborn and defensive about their feelings? Yes, indeed. But I feel like the last few episodes that we got you know, think about the the doubleheader, Scorpion 1 and 2, and then the gift. They are so deep, and they are so thorough with the exploration, particularly of our new character, Seven of Nine, that this one just feels like, let's make a lot of things happen. But, but then I second-guess myself, and I wonder if that is an unfair assessment. Everybody in this episode is good, even if the moments feel contrived that they have to play out. I I, I think this episode partly suffers because it tries to cover so much ground here. You think about it, it's one episode, and you get Seven's relationship with the crew, Balana's psychological state, you get some Klingon holodeck antics, you get a transwarp experiment, you get a relationship story, and don't forget the alien of the week (laughs) and our backfired Good Samaritan plotline here. But all of those things are worthwhile 
they just don't necessarily add up here to make an amazing story, an amazing episode that stands up on its own. So this maybe is an episode that is less than the sum of its parts, but some of those parts are very good. So I can't really say that it holds up, especially what we just came from in the last three episodes. Mm-hmm. What about you, Norm? That's a great way of putting it, because uh, after Scorpion Part 2 mm-hmm. and then The Gift, a very solid one-two punch yeah. to, to start this fourth season, I think any episode really would have had a difficult time trying to maintain that same level of momentum you know, mm-hmm. and, and quality. And I think that this episode really tried but again, you're coming off of, you know, you're decelerating from probably one of the best opening acts, I think, that we've seen so far in Voyager. Mm-hmm. Now, I like this episode because of the Seven of Nine character study, which is, it's incredibly fascinating to watch Jerry just take this character and find new and interesting ways to to show Seven's struggle with what she's learning versus what she has left. And I think that if that continues... I'm going to make a hot take projection here. She (laughs) might be one of the most fascinating characters ever written for Star Trek. I think that her acting is incredible. And there's the obviousness of why she was chosen for this role Mm -hmm. and as seen in her wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get crass about that, but that conversation has been had for the past 25 years. But in all honesty, that all fades away when she's acting. For me. Yeah. Her characterization, you know, her ability to like, you know, to to, you know, have the nuances of this character, you know, um, in her every movement, her every gesture, especially in her eye twitches, Mm -hmm. uh, just absolutely fascinating to watch. My problem with the episode, though, is that, as you said earlier, Tom and Bolana's story is so incredibly telegraphed from like the very beginning. And if there were a contrivance or a trope to be written for how they get to confessing their true feelings for each other. Most of them have been used in this episode at one point or another. You have being stranded, being isolated, you know, being kind of floating alone in space, fearful of dying with regret. Like any one of these on their own are really strong narrative beats, even a few of them together. But when you like condense them all into short sequences and acts four and five, and then you really pushing that narrative home it's a little bit too much i think just in terms of trying to not see it for what it is Mm -hmm. again this this forced telegraphed way of making balana confess that she's in love with tom and also trying to fit in there that tom is no longer this pretty boy piggish fly boy Mm -hmm. anymore Mm -hmm. like they're trying to shed too much too quickly and it ends up being a little bit too heavy-handed but that's you know Maybe that's what they had to do in order to move the story forward for season four. But one thing I thought that was really also redeeming for this episode is that you had these two type of ritualistic moments for both Balana and Seven. Seven's name change and Balana's day of honor. Mm. One of which is kind of imposed upon, well, Janeway imposes upon the name change with Seven. And Balana's almost cultural guilt imposes the day of honor upon mm. her. And both of them have to find a way to resolve their you know, respective situations. Seven does so by learning mm-hmm. and Balana does so by almost, uh, I wouldn't say confessing. She does so by accepting. She accepts the fact that the anger is part of her and she has to find a way to live with it and also forgive herself for it. Yeah. And I think that Seven's doing the same thing. She's forgiving herself 
for what the board did by rectifying like what she did with the uh, Katati to help them where the Borg took from them. So I thought that was an interesting parallel to be drawn. But it was amidst so much stuff yeah. that they didn't have their own uh, abilities to breathe. Yeah. You know, I got to focus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk about Seven of Nine as a character, and, and I'm thinking that the the real appeal of that character is that you have someone who comes in with just a lot of strength as a character but also a lot of vulnerability like both of those things are cranked up and that Mm -hmm. then can't help but make the audience be fascinated but also very sympathetic like you cannot help but feel for what she's been through and then how that expresses itself from one moment being the smartest person in the room with all this ability, with all this cool logic and reason and lack of the encumbrance of things like guilt, right? Mm-hmm. But also those things being so difficult, so so damaging to a human who doesn't have them, that it, it makes her one of the most vulnerable people on the ship. It, it, it is a, a great way to sketch out a character, and they they must have been very happy to kind of come up with these ideas for Seven, then cast the role, then you start to get that dialogue in that actor's presence, and you just go, wow, the, this really takes on a life of its own. So it, it's very yeah, cool to see. Now, let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. To me, this episode is about trust. It's about trust coming in a few different directions with a few of these different plot lines. We, and very often when I say we in Mission Log, I'm talking about Starfleet as a representation of us as human beings. We're compelled Mm -hmm. to help the ones who need it the most. But then how far does that trust extend before we're being taken advantage of? And we have to reassess that trust and presume that 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 is still the best way to lead uh, when we encounter somebody new. And then what about Seven? Again, we as Starfleet, we say that we are leading with trust, but it's the verify part that really puts a damper on that trust. It is assumed that Seven did something wrong on purpose, and only when it's proven that she didn't are things made right. This is a huge uphill battle for her and for the crew to meet and see eye to eye. And then there's also the thing about, uh, look, we, we might be saying that, okay, the Tom and Bellana story, it just does feel like it's fast forwarded to get to the point where you can finally get to them having relationship. But here's Tom having to trust his instincts and Bellana having to trust in him in order to be vulnerable enough to say that she loves him. This is all good and valuable emotional depth to plumb. But I think what goes beyond the trust explored in this episode is the persistence of that trust. Tom doesn't give up on Balana, even when they have these, again, like telegraphed kind of shorthand conversations. We go, okay, well, that that's kind of dumb. That's kind of like cramming everything into a 60-second scene. But Tom shows a persistence in his trust with Balana. And Balana needs to be maybe held a little bit to get to that point. All right. Seven. Time after time after time, she is shown distrust by her crew, but she is persistent in doing her job. Janeway is also persistent in her trust for her 
and also in ways to help the Qatari, even when they have shown that they are biting off more than they have been offered. So I, I, I have to hand it to Janeway as a captain and the I, the stick-to-itiveness of the crew to realize, like, you know what, we have, an, we have an opportunity here that these other people will take advantage of us, but we'll still stick by the principle to lead with our best foot forward, to trust in them, to trust in our abilities to help them, and hope for the best at the end of the day. I saw, I mean, I love how you phrased that, and I completely agree. I think that's like one very key center point to like this episode. But I saw a different moral. Good. <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it just, I think it would complement what you were saying about, you know, there's this underlying trust because there, I feel that in a lot of the characters, there were, there, there's something that's underneath them that's brewing, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, something that they're trying to prove. We all wear these facades in one way or another, but uh, if I may quote, um, what Batman said at the end of Batman Begins, nice. the very first, the very first film with, yeah. um, uh, from Christopher Nolan, and uh, he said, "It is not who we are underneath, but what we do that defines us." Hmm. And I found this quote relevant to this episode as as my moral that I found because, well, especially in two key scenes. The first is when Tom escorts Seven away from the Katati who accosted her in the corridor for the atrocities of the Borg. Seven says, there are many people on the ship who have similar feelings towards me. Tom says, I'm afraid you're right. Does that bother you? And Seven says, no. And Tom says, well, I'm not one of those people. We all have a past. What matters is now. And I think that this is a really good lesson with how we handle the then, the here, and the now. Mm in terms of how we apply judgment or bias to certain situations. And I think that it's really significant coming from Tom. And I think it's a great, it, it's a great scene for him because from the very beginning, he was the one who was judged and labeled as a traitor, you know, and he was always, he was never given the benefit of the doubt. He was always looked down upon as somebody with, who was nefarious and someone who wasn't worthy of anyone's trust until now. And now he's paying that forward to Seven, saying like, look, you have a past. I have a past. We all have a past. That's done, right? What are you going to do now to make things better? And the other scene is, like right after uh, Janeway um, believes Seven's explanation about the tachyon particle issue with the engineering uh, kerfuffle and then the warp core failure, Mm -hmm. Janeway says, unexpected acts of kindness are common among our group. That's one of the ways we define ourselves, going back to what Batman said, mm-hmm. but what we do that defines us. And perhaps this is the moral that reaches seven in, in some meaningful way, because we, we talked about how instead of sacrificing ourselves, she finds a way of sharing this technology that's capable of solving the Katati's problem. She didn't have to. Somewhere along the line, what Janeway says took root, and then she created the solution that in some way even in some small way, was able to rectify what the board did to the Katati. And seeing that happen and seeing Seven acknowledge that, there's that underlying layer that Batman was talking about, about what you do that matters. Mm -hmm. And that is Seven learning this act of kindness. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Nemesis. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Now that I've actually seen it in its entirety, I wonder where Warp Core fits on a scale from Noise Core to Grind Core. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.